Well, thank you, Mr. McKee, for your words of welcome, for the invitation also to come along here to Macrofelt this evening and speak to you from the Word of God, and in doing so, give a word of testimony. I'm just thinking there that preachers are so used to preaching all the time, Sunday after Sunday and so forth, that we almost never get a chance to give our testimony in that uh, kind of a setting such as we're here tonight. But it is my privilege to be here and to address you along these lines. And I trust the Lord will bless us richly as we come before him. We're going to turn to read the Word of God in Acts 26, book of Acts chapter 26. And I want to read from the verse number 13. And in these verses, we have the record of a testimony given by a minister. And of course, that minister is the Apostle Paul. And so it is a relevant passage, and I trust that the Lord will bless His Word as we read it together. Acts 26 and the verse number 13. And we're breaking into the passage here where Paul is addressing King Agrippa, And at this point he says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me, having therefore obtained help of God. I continue on to this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of his own precious word. Now we'll bow together just for a moment and let us pray, looking to the Lord for help as we come around his word and We proceed on through this time, our Heavenly Father and our Eternal God. We bow in Thy presence in the name of Thy Son, our Saviour. We thank Thee for 
the one whom Paul preached, the one who met him on the Damascus Road and saved him there and then took him and used him in that mighty fashion that is recorded for us in this book and even in his own epistles. We thank Thee that it is our privilege to serve the risen Christ, to witness for Him, to testify of what He does, of what He is able to accomplish when He takes a sinner and makes something out of that sinner for His own glory. O Lord, we thank Thee that we're privileged tonight to come together in this fashion. Bless the people gathered here. Bless those online. Remember, O Lord, as I would endeavor to speak for Thee and of Thee. And we pray that everything will redound to Thy praise and to the honor and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this for His sake and for His eternal praise. And in His blessed name, amen and amen. Three times in the book of Acts, Paul's testimony is recorded the first instance is in chapter 9, where the actual event of his conversion is in view, and it is Luke who records, of course, the details of that momentous day on the Damascus Road when this man who had been the persecutor of Christ and his church was brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. The second and the third instances of Paul's testimony are in chapters 22 and 26 of this book, respectively. The record is of the apostle speaking and telling the story himself of his conversion. In chapter 22, the scene is set in Jerusalem, where Paul addresses a vast concourse of Jews. Here in chapter 26, he is in the city of Caesarea, he actually is a, a, a prisoner at this point. He has been summoned to testify before King Agrippa in the court of Festus, who was the Roman governor of Judea. Shortly before the time in view in this chapter, when he was before Festus defending himself against the false accusations of the Jews, Paul appealed to be heard by the emperor himself, Caesar Augustus. Being a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to make that appeal, to be given a hearing actually before Caesar, and his appeal was upheld. When Festus granted Paul's request, the apostle came under Caesar's jurisdiction and was immediately freed from any responsibility to defend himself at this time in view here in Judea. And so, at the point that we read about in this chapter, he was simply being kept in Caesarea until arrangements could be made to take him to the city of Rome. During this intervening period, Festus was visited by King Agrippa, who upon hearing of the imprisoned preacher, desired to hear him for himself. And so this is how it comes about, that in this chapter we have the record of Paul having an opportunity once again to testify for his Savior, and he does so this time before a king. 
A believer's testimony is essentially the story, the account of the intervention of God, the divine intervention of Almighty God in a person's life, and all that subsequently flows out of that experience. A testimony includes the entire dealings that God takes with an individual. We should always keep in mind that being saved is the great experience of what God does when He gets a hold of a person. And it matters not who that person is, whether young or old or whatever their status may be, whatever their background may be in life, it's God getting hold of that person and making something out of that individual. I often think of what the Lord Jesus said to Peter. You find this in John chapter 1. And in verse 41, I believe it is, where Andrew brings Peter to meet the Lord, the Lord says to Peter, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonas. Then he says, Thou shalt be Peter, which by interpretation means a stone. And in that verse, the Lord was wonderfully summing up that very fact. That is, that being saved is what God makes out of someone who is a sinner. He said, you are Simon. The Lord knew all about Simon. Every detail about him, he's able to tell him his name. He's able to tell him his father's name. He'd never met him before, I mean, in the flesh. But he tells him everything about him. Then he says, I'm going to make something out of you. I'm going to make you Peter, which means a stone. And that sums up the testimony and the experience of the Apostle Peter. A testimony should be up to date. It shouldn't be going back to that one experience, which of course is wonderful and precious when someone is brought to know the Lord. Yes, that's fine. We do go back there and I will do that tonight. But it's more than that. It's a story. It's the account of all that God has done up to and including the present moment. And consequently in this passage you will find that Paul describes his conversion on the Damascus Road. He refers to his call to be a preacher of the gospel and to his commission to take the gospel to the Gentile world of his day. And he also shows here his obedience in his many years of missionary service. And today I want to use Paul's outline, if you will, that he uses himself in this passage. I want to give to you tonight a testimony of my salvation, a testimony of the Lord's call to service, and a testimony as well of the Lord's sustaining grace right down through until this moment. I begin, therefore, with my salvation in Paul's case, just to make this clear, if you look at verses 13 to 15, you find that in those verses, Paul is giving a record of what happened to him in that time of his experience of God's saving grace. He does the same in other places. For example, Galatians 1, 13 through to 16. In verse number 23 here of this passage where I began, or I, sorry, where I finished reading tonight, we've got the focus of his witness as a preacher because this is what he had experienced in his own life. He had come to know something, indeed, 
a tremendous experience of the person and the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in this verse, verse number 23, Christ's work is shown to be a vicarious work. Notice those opening words of verse 23, that Christ should suffer. And there immediately we are brought to the cross. We are brought to Christ crucified. We are brought to the Lamb of God, essentially the only one who is able to save the sinner because of what he has done in suffering, in dying, in accomplishing redemption, and then rising from the dead, of course, and his great work in heaven on behalf of his people. It mentions all of this essentially in this verse. And so his work is a vicarious work. And I'm glad tonight I can stand before you and say that it's on that work and that work alone that I am resting and depending for God's great eternity, for the forgiveness of my sins, for peace with God, for all that the Lord has done for me. I will never cease to praise Him because it all hinges on these words that Jesus Christ suffered. His vicarious work is what saved my soul. And it's that same work that will save you and nothing else but that work. And so we have here Christ's vicarious work. We've also got Christ's vindication. It says that He should be the first that should rise from the dead. The resurrection of the Lord is in view there, but from a special perspective, it says he was the first to rise from the dead. Now that may puzzle you because in the Old Testament we read of people rising from the dead. In the New Testament there are others who rose from the dead before the Lord. So why does it say that he was the first to rise from the dead? And the answer is that he was the first to rise again from the dead with an incorruptible body. And he arose as the first fruits of his people. That answers the question, by the way, what about Lazarus? What about Jairus' daughter and so on, the widow of Nain's son in the New Testament? And even people who uh, were raised by the apostles, what about them? Uh, did they not rise before the Lord? Well, or some after the Lord, but some before the Lord. But what about them? Well, my dear friend, they died again. Because the Lord was the first to rise from the dead with an incorruptible body. That's what those words mean. And therefore, the Lord rose as the vindication of his own work on the cross. That his work was done, his work was finished, sufficient to save. And he arose as the first fruits, first fruits from the dead to vindicate that what he had done at the cross and in his death was entirely sufficient to save all those who believe upon him. And then it goes on to say in verse 23, and should show light unto the people and the Gentiles. And there we come to the great victorious aspect of Paul's testimony here uh, as he speaks of Christ the vicarious Christ, the Christ who was vindicated by his resurrection, and the Christ who is victorious in this world, in that the gospel goes out into the world, uh, says here, to the people, that's the Jew, and then the Gentiles. And so right across the world, this blessed person 
with his vicarious death, his vindication of his whole work through his resurrection, the victory and the power of the cross. He's at work. He's saving souls. And thank God there was a time when he saved my soul and brought me out of darkness into light and from the power of Satan unto God. I don't really have time tonight uh, for I want to talk a little more about how the Lord called me and enabled me to serve Him, but I don't have time to go into all the details about my background, but just a little about that. Uh, I was born in, well, really a few miles outside of Portland Owen. It's from the area of Portland Owen that I come, uh, between Collybaggy and Portland Owen, to put it, uh, those two uh, vast metropolises of those, uh, of those names, Collybaggy and Portland Owen. I grew up on a farm, and that was a, certainly a very beneficial thing. I love, I love farming. I still have an interest in it. Uh, I never go past a farm. I don't have a look and see what's going on because it's in my blood. It was hard work. We all grew up on the farm. I was one of five children, and I had good parents, saved parents, and we were brought up to know the Lord in a very definite way, a very clear way, sent to church Sunday school, I suppose, like many, many people here this evening. A loving home, all that was part of my early life revolved around that home on the farm. We were a Presbyterian family, uh, going to one of the Presbyterian churches in Portland Owen, Church every Sunday morning, Sunday school first, church, another Sunday school in the afternoon, a local Sunday school in the townland where I grew up. This was my upbringing. This was my early life. I think of Sunday school teachers who taught me the things of God. And in that Presbyterian church, the teachers were all saved. The minister was saved. It was an evangelical church. And I certainly heard the gospel there. And especially in the Sunday school, I have memories of teachers who brought to me very clearly the things of God and impressed them upon my soul. And therefore, I had a consciousness of God. I had an awareness of my sin. I was not ignorant of these truths from my earliest days. I had a, an awful fear of death. I can remember in bed at night as a boy thinking about these matters and turning them over my mind and dwelling on them. And even the doctrine of the coming of the Lord and these things filled me with great fear because I knew that I was not ready to meet the Lord. And this went on through my boyhood days. There actually were times when as a boy I would go to my room and I would ask the Lord to save me and call on Him. I never had any assurance that I was saved at that stage, but certainly there was within my soul a seeking after God from early, early days. And I, you know, I thank the Lord for that because it was that that led on then to the time when I came to know Jesus Christ. There was a mission held in that same village of Portland Owen in First Presbyterian Church way back in 1969. And I went along to that mission. In fact, on the very last night of it, I was there with my brother and it was on that night that the Lord spoke to me powerfully. I don't remember now what the preacher preached. The preacher was a man called Dr. William Craig. And some of you may have heard of that man, a very well-known Presbyterian minister back in those days, and a great evangelist. 
And he preached the gospel faithfully, and that night the Lord dealt with my soul. And I remained afterwards and sought the Lord as my Savior and my Redeemer. Going home then to tell our parents, my brother and I, he was also saved that night, and to speak of what the Lord had done in our hearts in that meeting. He came down. He worked. He saved me. And I rejoice in that. And what a thrill it was for my father and mother to be told that their two sons had been saved in the one meeting. My parents are both in heaven, and I look forward to seeing them again. It is emotional to go back in your mind and think about those things. I remember talking to my mother the next day, the next morning, about all the others in the family circle who were saved. And I had many in my family circle, especially my mother's side. My mother's maiden name was Conley. And she came from a family where the gospel had been present for generations. I'm not sure of the exact number of greats I put in here, but her great-great-great-grandfather, whatever it actually was, was saved in the 1859 revival. And from that point onwards, in that family circle, the gospel was there. And many of those people, uh, that Connolly family circle, they loved the Lord, they walked with God. I had uncles and aunts and Rishark and Free Presbyterian Church, all from that same family circle. But anyhow, this is the time I was saved. That's the 30th of November, 1969. In those years, there were great stirrings going on in this province. There are some here tonight. You also can go back. Uh, you, you can go back to 69 and so forth and the years when the Lord was moving in our land and calling out many to stand for Him. We already had an interest in the free church. We had been a few times to the church in Balamina. And shortly after I was converted, the following year, 1970, we then made the break from the Presbyterian Church, coming to know much about the ecumenical movement, the drift away from the gospel, all that was taking place even in the Presbyterian Church, though there were many evangelical ministers still in it, and I suppose there are to this very day, yet as a denomination, even then it was a mixed bag, liberals, ecumenists, charismatics, and so forth, and we felt there was a need to come out. And that was a very real thing for us as a family. It was not easy. Uh, part of a large Presbyterian family circle, and we had to step out and leave the church and go along and join with those despised free Presbyterians there on the Waveney Road in Bellamina. But what a step that was, because I certainly know that in the providence of God, the Lord brought us out and taught us much under the ministry of Mr. Beggs over those years that followed from that particular point in time I was then uh, still 15, heading toward my 16th birthday, and we made that step at that particular time. And we received great blessing under the Word of God, under His preaching. The prayer meeting became a vital thing in our lives, and it was at that time on a Monday night, 
And we went there Monday night after Monday night, all the other different meetings and so forth. There was a lady in that church at that time, uh, Mrs. Isabella Paisley, Dr. Paisley's mother, a godly, godly woman. And she was in charge of the Sunday school. And uh, when I was around 17 years of age, she asked me to teach in the Sunday school. And the youth fellowship was formed at that time there in Bellamina, and I was part of that youth group. So that's something about my background with regard to being saved and, and then the growth and grace that followed on. And it was not long after that we had gone to the church in Bellamina, the Lord began to deal with my heart about preaching. Now, He started to work with me before I ever had even attempted to preach. And I found that very strange because I couldn't understand why the Lord would be speaking to me about the preaching ministry when I never had actually opened up the book and preached to anybody. But that's what the Lord was doing in my soul. I remember specifically verses coming to me and more than that even a compulsion rising in my heart that this is what the Lord wanted me to do to step out and go after him and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wrestled with that for some time. As I told you earlier, I grew up on a farm. I loved the farming. It's all I ever wanted to be, was to be a farmer. And so as soon as I could leave school, I was at Ballymena Academy. As soon as I could get out of there, I was away because I wanted to be a farmer. And I went home, I worked on the farm, and it was just after that, as I said a little earlier there, that I got saved at the age of 15. And in those days you could leave school at 15, so I was gone. And so it was a great step that took place in my life as the Lord began to deal with my heart and speak to me about the gospel ministry. And so I felt the compulsion within my soul, and I wrestled with it for quite some time. Spoke to my minister, wanted to know his advice, and he certainly gave me good advice. There was one occasion when he was uh, in America preaching uh, and was bringing the Word of God at a certain time in a church over there. He came back, and the very first Sunday he came back, he was preaching about the need of God's work in the United States. Now, later on in my life, I look back at that because, as some of you may know, that's where I ended up for quite a number of years. But that Sunday morning, I came home, and I can remember yet in the church on the Waveney Road where I was sitting, just alongside the pulpit, Mr. Beggs was preaching, and this was his theme, his thrust, and his preaching, the need for preachers, the need for ministers. And I knew that morning, without any shadow of doubt, that God spoke to me. The compulsion intensified. The, the feeling of God's call deepened in that meeting. And I spoke to him right after the meeting about what I had felt. And then we got together and he began to give me more advice about the way forward. And so in September, October 1974, I entered into the theological hall of our denomination and began to study for the ministry. During my time, well, whenever I started, it was a three-year course. And then about midway through, it changed to four years. And you talk about moaning and groaning among the student body at that particular time. But looking back, you know, it didn't do us one bit of harm. It was necessary, and uh, 
Uh, therefore, I found my time in the hall, as we called it, extended by one year. But anyhow, in June 75, at the end of my first year as a student minister, I was placed in Six Mile Cross as a student minister. Back in those times, there were new congregations being born, and the presbytery put men in charge of a church in their student days. So here I was, and I'm giving away my age now if you're doing your maths, but I don't really care, uh, because I'm turning 70 in May, just to put you out of your misery if you're wondering what age that fellow is up there. In June 75, I was placed on Six Mile Cross when I had turned, just turned 21 years of age. I often say to the people nowadays that I look back and I wonder how they ever listened to me. But somehow, somehow or other they did. And I was really blessed on Six Mile Cross. I spent there three years as a student minister. The church had just been born uh, the November before, November 74, or thereabouts, through a mission that was organized by Oma's Youth Fellowship. Now, my wife, who's here tonight, as Mr. McKay said, was in that youth fellowship. I didn't know her in those days, but she was part of that group that went up to Six Mile Cross, and she's from Oma, and, and did all the outreach work, and the Reverend Frank McClellan preached, and a mission was held. The Lord really blessed it. Many were saved. Families separated from the apostate churches, and the church was born in that little village. And little did I know that one young lady was involved in all of that who was going to become my wife at a later time. So I was there from uh, June 75 right on through until I finished my study in the year 1978, and then the church called me to be their minister. Before that, I was wrestling with the future. The Lord laid a verse in my heart from Ruth chapter 2 and verse number 8, where we read these words, Go not to glean in another field, but abide here. And the Lord spoke to me about that, and I knew that I was to stay on Six Mile Cross, and when the call of God came through the people, then it led on to my ordination in December the 16th, 1978, and I became the uh, minister there in that sense of things at that particular time. Earlier that year, we had been married. I met Joan, uh, actually for the first time, in Ballymena. Uh, it was back in March 1975, in my first year as a student, uh, prior to going to Six Mile Cross, and uh, her church, Youth Fellowship, Back in those days, we used to have a church, a youth fellowship quiz. I can remember coming to Macrofelt uh, as part of the Ballymena team and playing Macrofelt in those uh, youth fellowship quizzes. So Oma came up to play Ballymena, and that night uh, I met Joan. Now, nothing happened that night. I just saw her, and then that was it. But uh, anyhow, months went by. I met her later that year. And I was placing Six Mile Cross, and all things then began to fall into place. So we were married on the 19th of July, 1978. Now, the Lord really blessed in Six Mile Cross, I must say, in those years. Where the church started, some of you may know this, was a little corrugated iron hall. They called it the Tin Hall, as people like to do when they want to cast aspersions upon you. Look at those people in that wee tin hall. Who do they think they are? 
That was the hall where Ian Paisley preached his first sermon when he was 15 years of age because that's where his father was born in the Six Mile Cross village area and Ian Paisley used to go there as a young fella in his teenage years to uh, work on a farm, a man called George Watson. And on one occasion, he preached his first sermon in that hall. So that's where the church was born. It continued on there. We were able to buy a site in the village, at the other end of the village. If you've ever been down that way, you'll know what I mean. And uh, during uh, the, the time there, that church building was then erected and was opened in the month of May 1982. That brings me right to this stage now where I want just to say a little about the move to the United States. I was asked to go there to Philadelphia, specifically to a suburb of that city in the early part of 1979. And I went there to fill the pulpit for six weeks. The church started in a house in a suburb of Philadelphia called Newtown Square. And I'm sure some of you have heard that particular name, Newtown Square, uh, Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. And so I went there and filled the pulpit for six weeks and that's all it was. It was a visit. Came home and carried on with my ministry in Six Mile Cross and never thought any more about it really. Until one uh, year in January 1981 when Dr. Frank McClellan was home for the week of prayer. He approached me. He, had, he was in charge of the church in Newtown Square. And he came to me and he said, I was down at the church there preaching on a recent Sunday. That was in December, uh, previous to this January 81. So the previous December he was down preaching. And he said, the people there asked me to approach you about being their minister. And I must say, when he asked me this, I immediately said, well, I'll, I'll pray about it. But the life was scared out of me. I had no thought whatsoever of ever leaving Northern Ireland, no desire to leave Northern Ireland. Very happy in my ministry in Six Mile Cross, and the Lord, as I said, was blessing there and so forth. And yet I had to take it to the Lord. And in that week of prayer, that was a Monday, in that week of prayer, God began to deal with my heart in a very real and powerful way. It's one of those experiences, folks, that you can't really perhaps understand unless you go through it. And so God was dealing with me day after day in that week of prayer. And I went home and I told my wife and that was a, a big surprise to her and very emotional on her behalf with regard to what I felt what the Lord was doing with me and I kept on bringing this before the Lord and praying about it. Uh, it was one thing to be sure of the call to the ministry itself. Another thing to then know the Lord's leading to stay on Six Mile Cross and serve there. But this was immense. I was 28 years old at that stage. We were married. We had uh, by that point, two children, and uh, we were happy, etc., settled. And here's this immense challenge to my soul about uprooting and leaving this province and going to the United States to that fledgling work to see it pioneered. 
I prayed about it. I brought it before the Lord. It's what we need to do, what we must do, and I did that. And the Lord began to speak to me, and especially from one verse that He brought before my heart. If you turn back in the book of Acts here, please, back to Acts 22 and the verse number 21. Acts 22, verse number 21. And it says in this verse, He said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Now, whenever this verse came to me, it came in a manner that was according to how, how I had prayed. I had asked the Lord that He would speak to me from the Scripture, and I had laid out three particular matters that I wanted the Lord to do or to fulfill so that I would know He was guiding me and leading me. And I'd asked the Lord that He would speak to me from a Scripture that was completely unfamiliar to me. I'd asked the Lord to bring before me in that Scripture a command to go, because remember what I told you about Six Mile Cross. At that point, it said to me in Ruth, chapter 2, verse 8, go not to glean another field, but abide here. So I asked the Lord to give me a verse that would contain a clear command. The third thing was that it would be a verse that would come in my daily reading. And so I came to this reading one Wednesday. I knew, I know now, I can remember it well, it was a Wednesday morning. And when I read this verse, my heart leapt because it was a clear command to go. It was in my daily reading. And you could not get anything more relevant than this. Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And so I, I was really amazed. I, I felt God had spoken, and I prayed over it. And, of course, I was still doubting and fearful. Sometime after that, one Sunday morning, I went down to the church in Six Mile Cross. We were still in the little hall at that point. This was uh, 1981, remember. The church wasn't opened until 82, the new building. So we're still in the old hall. And we didn't have any prayer room in that hall. There were no toilets in that hall. It was a very bare structure. But anyhow, I went down there for an 8 o'clock prayer meeting as we'd had every Sunday morning. I opened up the Bible. I read a passage. I led in prayer. Then the people began to pray. I sat down. And of course, this whole thing was churning in my mind about this verse and this call and so forth. And I opened up my Bible at this verse and I was sitting reading it when something very unusual happened. I was praying, Lord, you spoke to me, but the doubts were still there. Now, I hadn't asked the Lord for what next happened, but here's what happened. I'm sitting reading the verse. I'm praying in my heart about this whole matter. Nobody knew about it except my wife and Reverend Frank McClelland. And a lady began to pray, an elder's wife. She was broken. She wept. And she said this, Lord, this morning I think of that little church in Philadelphia 
They have no minister. And I pray that you will send them your man. The men and women, brothers and sisters, those, those, that kind of thing does not happen except God is in it. Those are her exact words. I told her some months later, you prayed me out of this church. Because whenever she prayed that way, I knew right away the Lord has confirmed to me His will. I never asked, as I said, for anything like this, but it came. And so, we had to wait until 1983 because uh, the church had to be opened, and then our third child uh, had to be born, put it that way, and so we moved to United States in March number uh, March 1983, and began to labour there over the ensuing years. We spent 17 years in the United States. They were blessed years, uh, very encouraging years. It started out in a very small way in a house. Uh, there wasn't much movement for six or seven years, but there was some encouragement in various ways in those, those early years. One of them being, of course, my very good friend, uh, the Reverend John Wagner. He and his wife came into the church at the early stages of our time there and became members, and then the Lord called him to preach. And I know you've had him preach here, I believe, in, in Matrafelt, and uh, what a man of God he was. But he's a great help, a great encouragement to us. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the work went on, and around 1990, things began to go forward at an amazing pace. We had built on a new wing to that house in Newtown Square. We were living in the house. We were meeting in the house as well as living there. That was, there was nothing else for it, but that was fine. We're happy to do that. And then we were able to build on this new section and it held about 70 or 80 people, a maximum. But around 1990-91, the Lord began to bring people in, just, as we say, out of the blue, but in answer to prayer. The Lord sustained the work in those years, the first half of, or the, the first uh, years I was there. He sustained it wonderfully and met the needs and so on, and uh, was self-sufficient. But we want to see the growth, we want to see the development, and then it began to come. One person after another began to come in and, and then tell somebody else. And before very long, the building was packed to capacity with people not only in the, in the seats, but sitting up around the pulpit where I preached, uh, even right up toward the very, uh, the, the very perimeter of the pulpit they were sitting up there. There's no room out in the entrance hall. It was a wonderful time. And just at that stage, we didn't know where we're going to put any more people. The present building of the church there suddenly came on the market. It was another suburb of Philadelphia. It's only about eight miles from us. Over there, that's really nothing. Uh, but anyhow, eight miles would take you to another free church here. But over there, it's just a, a step. The nearest free church was 400 miles away up in Toronto or 650 miles in the other direction down in Greenville. But anyhow, the Lord began to work and this building came on the market in a marvelous way and 
And we, were, we moved there in 1993, and the work went on right through until uh, the present day when the Reverend Stephen Pollock, as you probably know, is the pastor of that congregation, and it's been blessed under his ministry. So why am I back in Northern Ireland? This is part of my story, part of my testimony. The Lord saved me. The Lord called me to preach. The Lord took me into the ministry, to Six Mile Cross, to Philadelphia area, and now back to Bellamina. That was my home church. And in May 1999, one, one, well, no, one Thursday morning, or I think it was Thursday morning, I got a phone call from the Reverend Beggs. He told me that for two years the session in Balamina had been praying about the future of the congregation there because he was coming to retirement. And he said, we spent two years praying about this. He said, last night we had our final session meeting of this stage of affairs, and he said, we have come right down to one name. And he said, John, it's your name. He said, we feel you're the man to take up the work in Balamina. Now, if the initial call to the ministry was challenging and moving to America was immense, coming home, and I want to say this carefully, coming home was even more challenging because the Lord was mightily at work there. Our family had grown up there. We had three children going out to America. Three more were, were born in America. And therefore, our family were at a stage. The older children uh, were in their late teens, and very soon we'd be putting down roots. And all of this was in our minds, and so uh, it was a matter where I had to really pray it through once again. Lord, what will thou have me to do? The story about the call back to Northern Ireland and to Balamina specifically it would take all night, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, at all, but the Lord spoke to me in a clear, powerful way. Whenever Mr. Beggs phoned me, he told me about that session meeting the night before. He had read from Acts 13, and his focus is on the first few verses of the chapter where uh, Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas as was then, were going to be sent out by the church at Antioch, and he was, it shows there how the Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work unto which I've called them. And he was focusing on the need for the guidance of the Spirit and the call of the Spirit and, and so forth. But as he read down that passage, he didn't notice something himself, but an elder read it, or, or noticed it. And as he read down the passage, it says in a certain verse, and they had John to their minister. And then at the end of the passage, where he actually stopped reading the very last verse, it says, and John returned to Jerusalem. And this elder felt very clearly that God has spoken here. Now, the references there to John are to John Mark. And in a certain sense, the references to that man in that passage are kind of negative. But it was the words. They had John to their minister. And John returned to Jerusalem. 
And so that man, that elder, felt the Lord has spoken here, and he drew it to the attention of Mr. Beggs and the other session members, and they all saw it. So Mr. Beggs told me this in the phone call, the words that were so significant. And I began to pray about this, and almost immediately, brethren and sisters, in my daily readings, the Lord began to speak to me in certain verses where Jerusalem kept coming up and going back to Jerusalem. You see, Balamina was my Jerusalem. I went out from Balamina Church. And so in that sense of things, I was going out uh, from Jerusalem, so to speak. You know how we see that in the Scripture. Jerusalem was the home base for the early church, and then men went out from there, and so on. And, and so this, this is how they saw it, and the Lord began to speak to me about that, and in many, many instances, and I could not get away from it. It was coming up continually in my daily readings. I remember one of the peaks of the time was in the minister's week of prayer in October of 1999 in New Hampshire, up there in New England in the United States, and I was up there, and I remember the very first day of the week of prayer, I got up early in the morning, and I sought the face of the Lord about all this, because again, I was in turmoil, didn't know really yet what way to go, as far as that stage was concerned. But I said, Lord, I want you to speak to me this morning from the message that will be preached. And the message that was preached that day was from Acts 20. And as soon as the man read, I knew immediately God has spoken once more. Because he read from Acts 20, and here is one verse that he read. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. The Lord spoke to me, as he had been doing already, and so without any hesitation at that stage, I contacted the Reverend Beggs and told him how the Lord had spoken, and I believe with all my heart that he had called me to go back to Palomina, and the church met there just after that and called me to be their, their minister. It was kind of unusual to be called back to your own church. I suppose Mr. McKee has had that experience. But the Lord's the one who provides and sustains, and that brings me to my final thought tonight. The salvation, the service, the sustenance. Look at verse 22 here of Acts chapter 26. It says this, this having therefore obtained help of God, I continue on to this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. And you know, that sums it up as far as I am concerned. I have mentioned just a few minutes ago about where I am in life. And in a few months' time, I will be retiring from the pastorate in Balamina. I stayed on these four years after retirement age because at that stage, the Reverend Andrew Stewart, we felt, was the man for Balamina. And the church have called him, as you know, I'm sure. And so I stayed on for these four years just to work alongside of him, to have him get experience and get well settled into the work, and I was happy to do that. 
when the time has come where I will be stepping aside. But I can say tonight that what Paul testified here about God's sustenance has been my experience. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing. See, my dear friend, Christ the Savior never forsakes His people. He saves, He takes us, He uses us, whatever that may be. And through it all, He sustains the soul, He gives the help, He gives the power, the grace needed. He leads, He guides, He brings things to a point where maybe developments occur as I've described for you tonight, the different churches in which I've served. He does all this. And through it all, we can say, I continue on to this day witnessing. I've laid before you tonight my testimony. I spoke there in the early stages about the matter of my own salvation and how it's uh, that verse 23 that really sums it up with regard to how a sinner is saved. But I ask you tonight, where are you? How is it with your soul? Are you resting in Christ alone? Do you know Him as the one who suffered on the cross, who rose from the dead, who sends forth the gospel into all the world, who has brought the gospel to you, into your life, in one way or another, and yet you may not be a Christian, yet in your sin, lost and guilty and on the wrong road in life. What I have told you tonight is what the Lord has done for me and has done with me, and I rejoice in it all. But you see, He can be your Savior if you will seek Him. You will come to Him, as I did as a, a lad of 15 years of age. And I trust that tonight you will seek the Lord while He may be found and call upon Him while He is near because He will not turn you away. Why not tonight? When this meeting is over in a moment or two when Mr. McKee comes to close it and you have opportunity to speak to him or to me, I'll be glad to hear from you. Why not make this tonight and you will come to Christ? And I trust that you will and that God will bless His truth to your hearts and use it for His own glory and for His eternal praise.